we're sending money out of Syracuse and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. But when you are told that there's a promise that your generation will be better than the previous generation, and we're seeing that the statistics tells us that that's not the case, it's evidently clear that it only is going to change if we are going to be the ones who fight for our future. So we want to put in context because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. Hello, this is Yusuf Abdukadir. Welcome to Afro Futures. On today's episode of Afro Futures, we have an amazing, brilliant brother here, Brandon Anderson. And uh, Brandon, I just want to thank you for being on Afro Futures today. I'm, I'm excited to have you for really so many, many reasons. But I'm, I must say your body of work is such an important contribution to the space. And so I'm delighted to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. And just so that folks know who Brandon is, um, if it's fair to characterize your work existing at the intersections of social entrepreneurship, police abolition, and technology, then I'd say that Brandon is one of the foremost leaders in this space and is noted for his many contributions beyond this space. Uh, on this episode of Afro Futures, we're going to be talking with Brandon about Rahim, which is a digital tool for policing the police, its role in advancing a world without police terror, and so much more. Brandon is uh, a police abolitionist. He is the leader of Rahim uh, and the innovator of this really important project um, and endeavor. And I'm super excited to have you on Afro Futures today. I always like to begin with, with how the personal is political. Um, and so we want to get a sense of, you know, your family's activism, because a, what I found <clears throat> as I get into conversations with a lot of folks who are doing social justice work or people who are involved in thinking about solutions to the challenges that are plaguing our communities, it almost is often many stories and, and relationships in our lives that have brought us to this point. Um, mm -hmm. And for you, mm -hmm. I, you know, it, it's kind of full circle in many respects. So I just, I'd be interested in hearing about like, you know, your family's, uh, you know, sense of activism on, against police uh, violence and terror and, you know, the, the connections between the, the way that the war on drugs has affected your family and your mm -hmm. mom and, and then just mm -hmm. really how oppressively perverse and pervasive of the, the nature of police violence is in almost every sphere of our lives. Oh, yes. Yes, it, to me now, it is not about whether, uh, you know, whether our lives are entangled in this way, right? Like whether we are, um, you know, organizing against police, whether we are organizing against, uh, you know, the broader narrative about who Black people are and where we fit in this world, I, I think we are oftentimes finding ourselves in uh, in conflict with those, and those are the things that we organize around. And so for me, it's come to a point where I'm learning, you know, I'm 36 now, I'll be 36 next week, and a, a big part of my life for the past five years has been this unraveling of, of knowing, of, you know, just more and more and more about the history of my family with respect to, uh, with organizing against police. And my great, I found out just recently because I had a friend of mine who's a genealogist do some work and found out that my great grandfather, my great great grandfather was one of the only black surgeons in 1921 during the race massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was, uh, you know, his grandchild, my grandfather, 
um, was one of the first African-American men to own a nightclub in Oklahoma City, where I'm born and raised. And he organized against police very early on. Police would come to his establishment, harass him and his customers, and make it really hard for his customers uh, to want to stay. And that meant closing up shop for him. He lost his business very young and uh, turned to alcoholism. I met my I met my grandfather when I was 16 years old. He died when I was 19. I was born to his daughter, my mother, who in the early 1980s was uh, sent to prison for a paraphernalia charge that a rookie cop placed on her. And it was in prison that my mother became addicted in, um, to crack cocaine, subsequently losing her rights to me. And I met her for the first time when I was 15 years old. And speaking of when I was 15 years old, it's also the first time I ever fell in love it was with my best friend at the time. And uh, he and I grew up in Oklahoma went through grade school together, junior high school together, dropped out of high school together, lived homeless for two years on the corner of 36 and Coltrane. So if you listening and you're in Oklahoma, 36 and Coltrane is a place I love. It's next to this abandoned car dealership. It's not really an abandoned car dealership. It's an abandoned home I lived in, but the car dealership, no one really visited. Mm. Uh, it's always interesting though, that that's the place that I, I, I found the most love was, was in a place that nobody wanted to visit and in a home, mm. somebody left. And in 2007, uh, he was shot and killed by Oklahoma City Police Department during a routine traffic stop. And my, my world was shaken. And, and and all of what you heard about my family's history with policing came glaring. Uh, the next five years have just become more apparent that this is the work I need to be involved in. And so the history, uh, I, I think, as I was saying earlier, probably not that well. <laughs> I think that a lot of us will learn that our families organized against police and against police violence. And that many of us, in any organizing that we're doing, we are organizing against police, right? Like no, no matter how, how you slice that in one way or the other, we are organizing against police because of the way police are centered in our day-to-day -day experiences and in our macro experiences as being the main primary methodology of resolving this country's or this world's conflict. You know, Brandon, that was... I mean, there, there was a lot there, and um, I want to unpack a, a little bit of it first for a little bit, because I think in the first sense, you know, when you talk about uh, Tulsa, right, and, and your family's connection to Tulsa, and for those who may not know Black Wall Street, also familiarly, popularly known, um, uh, if you've watched any anything in the last year and a half, you've, you, you probably ought to know what Tulsa is, but the way that black wealth, black community was destroyed. And I think the word is appropriate, was terrorized, uh, was, you know, really Tulsa is a really specific manifestation of what that confluence between police and, and really state-sanctioned violence um, and, and, and as forms of retribution of black people's ability to progress and, and to develop and, and expand our capacity. And the relationship, as you say, is so pervasive that it doesn't just 
affect us, you know, obviously with the death of your partner in 2007, but intergenerationally, right? Like your mom's experience with this rookie cop, your, your, your great grandfather's experience in Tulsa, your grandfather's experience, and the way that this is etched throughout multiple pieces of our lives is why it's so oppressive and so pervasive. And, and, and I want to thank you for, for giving voice to that. And as, as we look to how black people have resisted police violence, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering, um, not that I was born in the 60s or 70s, but I'm remembering the work of the Black Panthers as a kind of armed resistance to policing the police. And when I grew up in the Bronx, in the community um, <clears throat> that had a lot of police terror um, during the 80s and 90s uh, in particular, uh, you know, just thinking through the way that the carceral state deployed police in our communities in, in such specific ways, both through abuse and corruption, but also consistently state-sanctioned and permitted violence. I'm reminded about in that community you had, you know, black uh, black folks basically policing our communities and both protecting people from the police and police violence, but also trying to make sure that we are as a community are working collaboratively to make a, a safe space. And then I, I think about your work with Raheem, and, and I characterize it as a digital police to police. It's definitely a lot more than that, and I know that it's beyond that. Um, but if you if if you would, what is Raheem, right? Like, you know, how do you go from from the death of of your partner in two thousand seven to building Raheem and the other things that you've built in between, and why the name? You know, I, I'm I'm Muslim, so there's there's a there's a deep connection to that word. Uh, because it's an Arabic word, it's one of the 99 attributes of God in Islam, and just as a black person, as a black person who's Muslim, like the the ideas that the word evokes for me is has a resonance. So I'm, I'm interested in hearing, you know, why why did you name this this product Raheem, and what does it do, and what does it seek to achieve? That's that's such a great question, and I hope that I can answer it um, as beautifully. I, because the name has really meant a few things as time has gone on, I've, I've seen it embody so much more. And I, so Rahim is the independent service for reporting police in the United States, right? Uh, Rahim is known for two things. First, we run a website that makes it easy and safe for people to report police and then get uh, resources for justice and healing. And the resources include connecting you with a free lawyer, helping you file a complaint, and then uniting you with a local advocacy organization. Second thing we're known for is that those community reports are producing a national data set on how police behave in about 220 cities in the United States. And so our partner organizations use the data to run campaigns that shrink the role of police and replace it with long-term solutions that respond to conflict with care. And the reason for the name originally, Rahim originally in 2017, uh, I founded it as a Facebook Messenger chatbot, right? Hmm. And so the very first and important piece of this is that I, I wanted to have, I wanted to have something that could communicate with people um, on a basic level and was personable. And so the chatbot's name was Rahim. And Rahim was, uh, was it, Rahim is an Arabic term meaning um, a second chance or mercy or compassion. 
And uh, in some sense, I founded the company and named it, uh, you know, Raheem in memory of my partner uh, in that second chance. Uh, another another way I had been thinking just just can't come to mind this morning is that so much of our world needs grace right now. When I think of that name, Raheem, and a second chance, I often am reminded of that grace. And I'll save this conversation for another time, but I wasn't always an abolitionist, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And I'm, I'm even careful of calling myself that now because a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, it's probably just more on self-critique, but essentially, you know, call myself a recovering uh, reformist and one of one of the things that I am grateful of that abolition has gifted me is the gift of grace um, and it's taught me so much about how I want to move throughout this world and it's moved Raheem you know in 2017 I was a reformist and across there there's been some conditioning and some politicizing um, mostly in my hometown in Oakland excuse me not my hometown where I live now my home the town Mm -hmm. in Oakland and the sort of radicalizing or politicizing or whatever one might call it and the coming to consciousness with reform or tinkering around the edges of a system I thought was only broken isn't the place I'm going to go and so when I founded Raheem it was Raheem the chatbot who wanted to have a conversation with you about how police perform so that they could get you know so that we could get you justice and healing and, and then we could file a complaint and then everything from then on would be good and dandy because filing complaints lead to accountability for police and safer spaces for communities. That's wrong, they don't. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to figure that out. But along that line, uh, Rahim was always ever present like Rahim is. This space for me, this organization for me, the family, the team that that is uh, that's invested in it. That is in it is has has been just an, an an ever learning experience in growth and reimagining myself as much as it has been about reimagining the world I want to live in and the one I think I want to raise my grandchildren in. And so Raheem has been Raheem has been more than a name to me. It's been a it it, it is the independent service for reporting police. Right, we run a service, but it's also been quite the remarkable learning point for me. So thank you for that question. This has a particular resonance, the the name Rahim for me as a black person who's also Muslim, because it's something that we like it's the one of the two of the most recited names in the Quran is Rahman or Rahim, which are like the two two major attributes of God that he like defines himself as, right? Like in the Islamic context. Um and it's it, it it's mercy is compassion, but it's it's the word itself in Arabic is rooted in ruhum, which is like three letters R H M, which those three letters themselves mean womb, right? And so like it's 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 definitely mercy and compassion, but it's more encompassing because it's like when if you would imagine, and you know it, it may be easier for people who rear children to imagine better than I could, but. The love that you have, the compassion you have, the, the 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 joy that you have, the feeling that you have when there's a child in your womb is very much what that word is rooted in. And it's interesting for you wow. because you created something out of that. And that service that, that, that you speak of, it's a service. For sure, it's a service. But it also is an ethos. And, and, and I think that ethos is 
is about a different world. And and why I wanted to tackle that, the word itself with like the broader ethos, um, is because I think they go hand in hand. And and I, I'll also say I wasn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't become an, uh, I, I didn't just naturally believe in abolition. It took me some time. You know, I say this as a person who. My brother was killed in front of my apartment building, but I also have a brother who has one of the most infamous uh, New York City police police corruption cases, um, Larry Davis and Ricardo Burgos, right? Like that's, those are two of the most widely known cases in New York City for police corruption. And and so, you know, I, I've, I've toyed with these ideas, but I think where we are today, it's, it's quite apparent that we just can't t- tweak across the edges. We can't reform our way out of this that there actually has to be a radical shift in how we understand policing. Just, it needs to be abolished as we know it, minimally. And so I, I can appreciate your your honesty about that because I don't think it's easy for folks to say who are now in this work to say that they've not always been there. But how does Raheem fit in the broader defund and abolition you know, spectrum, right? Like there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a broad set of ideas and values and ways that um, this particular service can fit within that construct and, and I think it's d- deeply related to your vision for what a future for black people to live their lives absent of police violence might look like. So if you could distill and qualify that first, that'd be really, really great too. Well, there are a couple of things I wanted to lay out on the table. I want to define a few things. This, this word we keep using or this phrase police terror is, <clears throat> is really a, an important part to, um, to start with. And to define police terror, we define police terror as a uh, as the consequence of decades of unrelenting state-sanctioned violence levied, especially against Black people, often by militarized police forces that result in high rates of Black death and extreme fear within the Black psyche. And if you couple this with the ongoing fact that the police or the officers are very rarely, if ever, held accountable for senseless killings of Black people. And the presence of police becomes like this looming, inescapable threat to Black bodies everywhere. And so when we think about what is police terror, we should contextualize that any use of the police is a use of terror, it is a use of force, it is a use of violence, right? Law enforcement didn't get the name enforcement with by being kind, they are enforcers of that law. And they often are trained exclusively to use that force in favor of enforcing the law. To give you some insight into the way Rahim fits into the larger landscape, of how do we build a world not only that is free of police violence, but that is free of police, Mm. right? And I told you that we were producing a national data set, right? That those reports about how police perform in more than 200 cities across the country now are producing this vast data set on how police behave. Well, it's also teaching us what leads police to be involved or called, and then also what goes wrong precisely, right? Other than police being present. Mm -hmm. And this has helped us understand the need for building alternative systems rather than reshaping violent 
anti-black systems. And that's why we're building an alternative dispatching system to 911, uh, one that we've called named Mutual Aid. And it's Raheem's next generation service. It's really designed to help people during limited acute crises while reducing police intervention. And it's accessed by an app, text message, or phone number. And it will connect people in need of urgent help to non-police resources best suited to help them. And so instead of calling 911 for common scenarios and risking police violence, People can use mutual aid to request caring help from their particular, for their particular situation. And as we move forward, we will, of course, prioritize the situations that most often result in police being called for and for which there are clearly better alternatives, right? These acute crises, mental health crises, noise disturbances, going to the bathroom in, the pub, in public, you know, and drug use. And... The, the benefits are, are many, right? We're people first. Uh, you know, it's not simply a list of service providers. It's a curated network of expert, community-focused, non-police responders. Uh, it's a single point of contact for people. Mutual aid is a, you know, it's not only a single contact, it's a single entry point for people to find help across a range of situations. And as with 911, people can ask for help without knowing who to call, right? Which is one of the largest problems right now. You have thousands of institutional fun, institutionally funded uh, organizations and services that exist outside of the 911 dispatching system but because of crooked policy and over and the uh, you know and police unions they have made it difficult for those institutions and services to be connected directly to the dispatching system and originally you know, we started out thinking, okay, this body of data will help us inform what policies we need to craft such that we can build a better world. Well, policy isn't the only way we need to be thinking about building that better world. And instead of asking police, hey, do you mind if we join your system? We're just going to create it on our own. 911 was created 50 years ago. Um, it's, it's not an archaic system. It is in some ways. But it's not something we can't do completely over and get it right. Uh, and so, I, I, I have really appreciated the you know thousands of people who have reported police over the past five years. It's really truly an honor. It's been able to generate this blueprint and scaffolding model about how best to build an alternative dispatching system to nine one one that removes co police completely from the scenario and engages people in, in the care that they need and finally delivers long-term care and long-term solutions to responding to conflict with an ethic of care. I'm reminded of the work that I'm involved in in Syracuse and across New York State. Last year, the killing of Daniel Prude, a person who was experiencing a mental health crisis mm -hmm. in Rochester, mm -hmm. New York, um, but more recently in March, uh, a young man who had a known history of mental health challenges uh, in the suburb of, of Syracuse called DeWitt, uh, Judson Albaham, 17 years old, uh, had a known history of mental health issues and was seeking support. Um, and it resulted in, in, in his killing. And, and in the case of Daniel Prude, his killing, and in the case of Judson Albaham, um, his, his, his death by police violence. And had, had we had something like Raheem, our communities 
would look very different, right? There would be young people who are able to get the help that they need, who can go through the, 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 the counseling, the therapy, and the other types of mutual aid and support that they need. There's the elders, you know, there was a 73-year-old man a few years ago in Syracuse who was experiencing a mental health crisis. Had he gotten the resources that he needed, you know, he would still be here today. He may be able to, to share his wisdom with his grandchildren. Uh, and Daniel Prude, who, who, may be, who may have been able to affect an individual's life or just exist. I think about the way, as you say, yes, these, yes, really, these systems are connected. Yes. And I, I mean, I love that you said, you know, <laughs> just existing, mm-hmm. right? Like they don't have to pr- be grand producers for their mm-hmm. lives to mean something. And, and so I, I just appreciated that point. And it, it really reminds me of this of a poem by Ross Gay, A Small Needful Fact. Have you, I'm sure you've heard of that. Tell, like, it's such let, a beautiful Let poem. us hear it. <laughs> it's a small needful fact by Ross Gay, and it goes, a small needful fact is that Eric Garner worked for some time for the Parks and Rec Horticultural Department, which means perhaps that with his very large hands, perhaps in all likelihood, he put gently into the earth some plants which most likely, some of them in all likelihood, continue to grow, continue to do what such plants do, like house and feed small and necessary creatures, like being pleasant to touch and smell, like converting sunlight into food, like making it easier for us to breathe. The irony, right? The 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 irony. The, the person whose life was taken out of him because he mm. can't breathe really did implant the seed of, mm. of breathing and I think as wow as as you continue to grow Raheem um, I hope that it continues to bloom in other cities around the country and communities that are looking for alternatives to, to policing and not just to policing or police violence and police terror but but alternatives a, a different better future that we deserve Brandon it was it was amazing to talk to you there's so many more things that I want to to connect with you on, but I, I really appreciate you having taken the time today to talk to us about Raheem, uh, your genesis, your work. You're doing amazing, amazing, important work. Where, where can people continue to follow your work or join? And 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 I, aren't you hiring? Like, what are the last few things that you can leave a viewer listening <laughs> yes. to before we go? <laughs> yes, I'm hiring. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So if you are interested in joining my team and helping us build a world free of police and police terror, um, you can go to raheem.org slash jobs. The other part is um, if you want to be an organization that hosts Raheem's chatbot on your website, we built uh, a fancy but super easy chatbot to install on your site. Turns any ordinary website into a site that can help report police, get justice and healing for the people who reported there. And then that data is also used to help us build mutual aid, the alternative dispatching system to 911. And you can find uh, out how to join that movement in that network by going to raheem.org slash network. So to join Raheem and our team, we're growing our team and our family. Uh, We're hiring an organizing director, a communications director, and also a data and policy director. And if you're interested in applying for those positions, just go to raheem.org slash jobs. That's R-A-H-E-E-M dot O-R-G slash J-O-B-S. Brandon Anderson, I am 
Super happy to have had you. Looking forward to seeing Raheem continue to grow and working with you as you build that future absent of policing. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Afro Futures. I'm Yusuf Abdul-Kadir with Brandon Anderson. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the show. Afro Futures is produced by WAER Public Radio with producers Joe Lee and Kevin Kloss. 